Welcome back to the Obigino Wino podcast. I'm going to talk a little bit about a very, very important topic to me uh, over these past couple years, which is cervical cancer screening and prevention. Let me start by saying and reminding everybody that when ACOG produces these guidelines, these are not hard and fast. Here's what you have to do. Okay, it doesn't mean like my client has this, this is what I have to do. There's ASCUS, there's HPV, we have to do colposcopy. Everything that ACOG or any college of any specialty in medicine, when they make recommendations, also known as guidelines, this is a best guess as to what is most feasible through the lens of a very reductive model that puts precedence over avoiding death over everything else. So if you're 25 versus 45 versus 85, these guidelines, they do change a little bit, right? And it's all based now versus before on just numbers. Now it's based on what is the risk of progression to sin three or greater. We're gonna talk about what that means. But I want you to put your critical thinking hat. If you're a practitioner listening to this, nothing that ACOG says is hard and fast what you have to do. It is just meant to help guide your counseling of your client or patient, or call it what you will, around what options they have available. And there is no topic, (laughs) there aren't many topics, let's say, that are more confusing then how to help manage this cervical cancer screening, um, the management abnormal results, that type of thing. Like it's constantly changing and there are so many players that are trying to help produce these guidelines that if you're confused or if you're not confused, let's say, then you're probably not living. You better check your pulse. So buckle up. This one's a a bit of a tricky ride and I'm not going to go through every detail of what used to be a practice bulletin now this is a um a sort of an appraisal of three different uh advisories that have come out first is the practice advisory titled updated cervical cancer screening guidelines published april 2021 this actually replaced practice bulletin 168 cervical cancer screening and prevention They've reaffirmed this practice advisory as er, as recently as April 2023. There's a second practice advisory, Updated Guidelines for Management of Cervical Cancer Screening Abnormalities, published October 2020, reaffirmed September 2022. And there's a committee opinion, number 624, Cervical Cancer Screening in Low Resource Settings, published February 2015, and it was reaffirmed June 2019. Reaffirmed just means that their group of whatever experts, whatever you want to call them, at the Green Journal have looked looked over this. ACOG has said, yep, this is it. The Green Journal has published it. Bam. And you get these new, di- new guidelines. So there's no longer a practice bulletin specific to this topic. Now there are three different documents. They're not, um, they don't contradict one another really all that much. But one thing that they don't talk about at all directly is the role of the immune system in not only mitigating and integrating viruses, which outnumber bacteria at least 10 to 1 in the environment. 
I've heard statistics up to 30 to 1. And a part of that problem is we don't have a clear definition of what viruses are. Yes, from a biological standpoint, you've got a strip of nu nucleotides known as nucleic acid, also known as genetic material. Some viruses are RNA. Some viruses are DNA. They're pretty much the same except for a, a flipping of, of an, an exchanging of one of those nucleotides. And then that little strand of nucleic acid would not be able to exist in our environment. It would just fall apart if it weren't surrounded by a protective envelope of protein so that it can travel through the world. So one of the um, unfortunate narratives, stories that we tell about viruses is that number one, they're out to get us, right? All these diseases are caused by the transmission of viruses. Viruses pass from one person to the next and now you've got this infection just like if you had an E. coli sepsis. It is not that simple with viruses. First off, these are not living things. They have none of the organelles to produce their own energy or do anything on their own except to infiltrate our cells and then become integrated into our protein um, production and packaging devices in order to proliferate themselves and spread themselves out in the world. In the non-human biological world, viruses probably play a very important role. And I would argue they play an important role in humans as well. They serve as a uh, this is my view on this because I haven't been convinced that viruses are out to kill us. If they were, they would have already destroyed us because they outnumber our bacteria, which outnumber us 10 to 1, right, in our bodies. So you are covered in viruses. These are just little messages, little like messages in a bottle circulating around. And in the non-human world, you could see this as an opportunity for a forest to sort of communicate with one another. I think this happens through the mycelial networks underneath our feet in the soil. We won't get into that now. But if there was a really, really elegant way for those mycelial networks to transmit messages or for these little messengers to flow through the air or whatever in order to hit as many living organisms as possible to notify you that there is something going on in the outside and you and your factory of proteins, your, 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 the nuclei and all those organelles inside your cells, needs to respond to this and adapt to what's going on in the outside environment. There is no exception to this little DNA virus known as human papillomavirus. And the good news, if a client has an abnormal PAP or a positive HPV screen, is that there is so much that can be done while you're awaiting repeat screening before you see the development of cancer. I personally question the reality that ACOG and a lot of other Congresses that they promote that HPV causes cervical cancer. I think we're picking up a signal through an HPV swab that there is something up inside your operating system, which is, seems to be unable to integrate this outside message of a virus. And as a result, you actually get downstream consequences, but it's not because of the HPV. The HPV is the signal. It's the little blue screen of death that comes up in your computer and says, hey, warning, something's going on here. So as long as we see viruses is out to get us, we're going to continue to go down this path of our war against nature. So one of the big problems, and what I really will clarify in, in this practice, or in this, uh, in this episode of the OB-GYN Wino, as well as in my new program, Clear and Free, Your Holistic Solution to Persistent HPV, which really gets into what can be done while you're awaiting repeat screens, repeat PAPs, while you're even awaiting a biopsy or a LEAP, one of these excision procedures that we'll talk about. There's plenty that can be done in order to take the invitation from this, this pesky HPV signal and start to 
try to figure out what baby steps can I take in order to improve my immune system. The immune system is important for not just integrating the message of these viruses, as I've already mentioned, but also for healing wounds, for, for recovering from injuries, for um, mitigating and, um, and instigating inflammation in the body, which in small amounts during certain periods of time is really important. That's how our wounds heal. That's how we fight off infection. That's how we get rid of abscesses, right? That's what our body does. That's what inflammation does. But if you're in chronic inflammation, it can suppress the immune response. And um, chronic stress is a great example of this. How we're eating, all the toxins from our environment and our soil and our air and our water. Like I'm not talking about like woo-woo toxins. I mean very, very toxic substances that disrupt our ability to live optimally in this incredibly complex world. The immune system is also, in addition to everything else it does, it's also responsible for scavenging precancerous and even cancerous cells from the body. When our ability to scavenge those cells is overwhelmed by these cells sort of, uh, the lack of their programmed cell death, you end up with tumors and masses and metastases and we die of cancer. So. We're going to try to keep a, a, a bird's eye view of this topic as we're going through. And I want people to be clear on what the up-to-date guidelines tell us about cervical cancer screening and prevention. As always, every episode is paired with a bottle of wine. This one is paired with the 2016 Margot Reserve de l'Estie. <laughs> it's obviously French, and I don't speak French. And our five pearls, in addition to what I've just said, there are five pearls to be taken from these three documents. One is that abnormal cells take months to years to develop after exposure to HPV. That's good news. That means there's plenty of time, yet the OBGYNs and nurse practitioners out there that are collecting these swabs are not giving women the tools in order to improve their immune system, improve their gut health, improve their nervous system, and all of that stuff. And when that happens, the signal goes away. Number two, SIN two or three takes years to decades to develop into invasive cancer. So that means that from the time that you're exposed to HPV, we're looking at 10, 20, 30 years until we have to worry about cervical cancer. Three, a healthy immune system is important for integrating the message of HPV as well as clearing abnormal or precancerous cervical cells. I've already touched on that. Number four, screening for HPV and cervical dysplasia takes place in general in three to five year intervals. And number five, HPV and pap screens are not the basis for a diagnosis of cervical dysplasia. A biopsy of the tissue is required to designate SIN, which is what we're going to be using as an acronym for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. That's a mouthful, which is why I'm not going to try to keep saying it in this hopefully 30-minute uh, or less pod. <laughs> so before we get started, let's, let's talk a little bit about cervi cervices. The vagina and cervix are lined with squamous epithelial cells, and that endocervical canal is lined with columnar cells. The line demarcating squamous cells versus columnar cells, where those two types of cells meet, is called the squamocolumnar junction, the SCJ. When a woman reaches puberty, the SCJ will become visible on speculum exam. And as she gets older, the columnar cells gradually convert to squamous epithelial cells, which is called um, a process called squamous metaplasia. With time, as a result of that, the location of the SCJ crawls its way from the outside of the cervix, the ectocervix, into the endocervical canal out of sight from speculum exam. The region between the original location of the SCJ and the present SCJ location is known as the transformation zone. And this is where all of the magic happens. Any clusters of columnar cells that haven't fully converted to squamous cells will appear as little pockets on ultrasound. This is the Nabothian cysts. And you can also, you can also kind of um, 
deduce from that that some of those crypts and whatnot that you see on biopsies of these tissue, they just get kind of um, kind of formed over in these little holes, like little sinkholes are formed, these little cysts. And you can see those on ultrasound. Another important thing here, which is relevant to how we uh, do colposcopy, at least good doctors do colposcopy, is that squamous epithelial cells produce glycogen in response to estrogen. And glycogen stains brown with the application of an iodine solution like Lugol's, which we'll also be talking about. With age, glycogen production decreases due to the drop in estrogen that happens with menopause and actually the perimenopause period, which can be 10 to 20 years long. Acetic acid will also be taken up into the cytoplasm of epithelial cells. So with age, these epithelial cells, they have this increasing nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, the NC ratio, and therefore less staining. But interestingly, atypical cells also have an increased NC ratio. So keep this in mind. I've included some, um, some graphics and photographs of the SCJ and, uh, and what histopathologically normal epithelial cells versus SYN1, SYN2, SYN3 all look like. But we do owe ourselves a little conversation around SYN. So again, this is only, we can only report this on biopsy. We don't we can't say something is SYN for sure from PAP, although SYN1 um, and normal PAP, or I'm sorry, SYN1, sin let's just say SYN1 and just sort of inflammation is generally resulted in either a normal PAP or a low, um, sort of a low-risk PAP, LSIL. SYN2 or SYN3, especially SYN3 or beyond, can be re reflected as an HSL, uh, HSIL lesion, a higher-grade lesion on, um, on PAP. So when you do this biopsy, you put a person in stirrups, I go and take a little claw and I take a chunk out of the cervix. I was always, I was always scolded because I never took a big enough chunk. And the reason I never took a big enough chunk is I knew it hurt women so badly. So we don't use lidocaine. We, I don't think I've ever seen somebody use lidocaine for one of these biopsies, yet there are so many nerve endings in the cervix itself. This is a sexual organ. This is one of your erogenous zones. Some women, when they've fully opened up their heart and their cervix and that connection through, of course, polyvagal theory and balancing the nervous system and everything else, when you can fully open up there and get rid of the shame and blame around your sexuality, you can have a cervical orgasm. This is not what many OBGYNs talk about because none of us really see beyond just a bunch of parts inside a woman's body. But I've been doing work, this work now for long enough and met enough people along the way to realize that there's far more to the cervix than just this like gasket that keeps a baby in or keeps a baby out, depending on you know, what your situation is. SYN1 reflects an acute HPV infection. It's just like an inflammatory reaction. SYN3 suggests, uh-oh, this is the next step before cancer. About 30% will progress to cancer if you look at the entire data set within 30 years if left untreated. Okay, so that's why doing surveillance any more frequently than every 12 months doesn't make any sense, if it even makes sense at all to do it every 12 months. Um, and this is also why the variety of our screening methods are every three to five years. But once you get SYN3, you're going to be going into the doctor far more frequently. Whether or not your doctor or nurse practitioner you know, is telling a client or a patient, hey, you can do all these things in the meantime, stop smoking, eat better, sleep more, all of those things um, is, is not really, I, I really can't control that. But that's what I do in my practice, and it works like a charm. So that means that SYN2 has this wide inter-observer uh, variability. 
And so the optimal management of SIN2 is widely controversial. When guidelines change, it's usually around what do we do with this gray area, the SIN2, which is probably the majority of the, quote, concerning lesions that are found on biopsy. Um, so a couple, just a, like a little some nomenclature here. Cytology is when we're just looking at some cells that are collected by PAP. Histology is when we're looking at it under a microscope, um, a full thickness biopsy under a microscope. All right, um, so the best guess as to how this whole sin thing happens is that HPV enters the epithelial cells of the cervix and then forces them to begin misbehaving, and then that eventually leads to neoplasia and cancer. Some types of HPV are more oncogenic than others. Um, oncogenic means cancer-causing. HPV 16 and 18 are the most commonly cited oncogenic strains. They, um, HPV 16 accounts for, this is again through the lens of our current model, up to 60% um, of infections. And then eight, HPV 18 um, accounts for the additional 10 to 15%. Um, and, and that is the infections that are going to lead to, to cervical cancer. It is thought that HPV is passed through sexual activity or exchange of bodily fluids. However, there was some really interesting um, work done by the guy who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the HIV virus, the nucleic acid that is known as HIV. His name was Luc Montagne. He was a French researcher, MD, PhD, I believe. He won the Nobel Prize because of his discovery of this HIV virus. Well, once he won his prize and retired and just could do whatever he wanted with his, his you know, the grand prize in, in medicine and science, he started thinking about water, and he started thinking deeply about these, these little strands of nucleic acid. And what he did was he took some vials of HIV that had the nucleic acid intact in the vials of solution, and he used a very, very high, uh, high perceptibility, or what's, what's the highly perceptible, is that the word? Highly sensitive microphone system and recorded a frequency that was being emitted by the atoms comprising the HIV nucleic acid and he, he recorded it. And then he sent that recording across Europe to some researchers in Italy, and they played it to vials that had nucleotides, which are the little building blocks of nucleic acid, as well as polymerase, which is one of the enzymes that helps to put them together. And lo and behold, this vial that had just a bunch of nucleotides, when, when it was exposed to the audio recording of the frequency of the HIV nucleic acid, it was able to form HIV nucleic acid completely de novo in front of their eyes. That is pretty fucking awesome. And so that tells us that it also may have something to do with the frequency that we emit and that we, in, in which we become in, in co-resonance with our, our sexual partners. We just, in our reductive model, have just said, hey, HIV is passed on. Is it passed on by frequency? Is it passed on by f bodily fluids? Is the frequency in the bodily fluids? Who knows? But that study, and you can, you can look at this online. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. By the way, if you guys are interested in seeing a more in-depth look at some of these and have a cheat sheet for yourself for your practice, you can print it out. You can have it available, whatever you want for your, for your colleagues. Join my uh, Patreon. Become a, a, a subscriber there for five bucks a month, and you get access to all of the documents on the ob Wino podcast. And I'm realizing we're definitely going to go over 30 minutes here. <laughs> so regular screening, I believe, is worth your time. And that's because of all of the cancers, this is the one that we detect it way before it's a big problem. And that gives you plenty of time to help manage or mitigate whatever has led to this unfortunate um, outcome. 
It's important to remember that 50% of women diagnosed with cervical cancer never had a single cytology screening. That's a pap screen, okay? 50%, at least never recorded. 10% hadn't been screened within five years prior to diagnosis. And this is why we have the intervals that we do that we'll get into um, when we talk about how, how frequent is screening recommended. HPV, which is, you know, the, the virus, of course, that is associated with this neoplasia is cleared by most people in one to two years, like upwards of 100% of people. But it seems like it's less likely if you have strains 16 or 18, if you're an active smoker or a smoking history, if you have HIV, of course, that's a complete collapse of your immune system, and if you're older than 30 years, which again guides our, the frequency of our screening. There are about 14 million people in the United States estimated to be living with HPV, about, I'm sorry, 14 million new people per year that are diagnosed with HPV, 80 million people living with HPV, and about 90% of people clear it in two years. And that rate, of course, like you, you might be asking, well, how do I know I'm gonna, not going to end up in that 10%? That's when you come to our program. You start working with an experienced functional medicine doc, working with a dietitian. You start getting whatever you can in your lifestyle based on your resources, your willingness, and your motivation. Um, to, to, to make this happen. You can get yourself definitely into that 90%, and you can probably even fall lower on the bell curve if you're really interested in investing in yourself. The program that I'm talking about, of course, is clear and free. Clearhpv.com is how you can find that out. If you're diagnosed with SIN1, or your client is, there's a progression rate to SIN2 or more of about 5%. SIN2, the regression rate of SIN2 is 60% or more, and the regression rate of SIN3 is 50% or more. Cervical cancer incidence, meaning the number of cases we're diagnosing, is less than 1% every year. So that's important statistics. That means that there's plenty of room here for us to improve on things. So if you want to improve the likelihood that you're not going to end up progressing, but instead regressing, going backwards, there's plenty of tools out there. Reach out to me. I'm ha happy to point you in the right direction or work with you one-on-one. -on -one. So when we talk about screening and how we manage this, okay, the American Society. So the ASCCP has an app. That's the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology. They have an app that you can download. I think it's like 10 bucks, but every person who's doing women health and doing this type of stuff should have this app. It is routinely updated with you know, new recommendations, new guidelines, and one of the biggest guidelines now is the risk of progression to SIN3 or worse invasive cancer. So the screening results, how we manage the biopsy results, all of that is based on what is the risk of this progressing. And we've already clarified that many women see a regression without doing anything at all. Um, they see a regression of, of their SIN or their HPV screen and all of that. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the screening process. So this is dysplasia screen. This is cytology screening. You have a pap smear. There's a liquid or conventional smear method available. Um, when you go in for your pap, the lube, you know, any lubes you're using, like if you had sex last night, if you have blood in there, discharge, semen, they can all interfere um, if you're using the liquid technique. But the liquid technique has several advantages. A single swab can be used for cytology, HPV test, uh, screening, and um, can also sometimes look for gonorrhea and chlamydia infection on evaluation. Um, it's also far easier to interpret than the conventional method. So despite the advantages, several studies haven't found an improvement in the detection rate of SIN through the liquid-based screen. 
Um, and therefore, you know, we still are left with these methods that are widely subjective and therefore variable. And that's why these are just screens. These are not diagnostic tests. These are screens. You're not being tested for HPV. You are being screened for HPV. An adequate PAP will have three components. I'm not going to go over these um, in detail right now, but when you see a report, you're going to see things like it was satisfactory or whatever. Um, you're going to see, um, like, let's say that it isn't. Well, let's just let's just go through the three components. I think it's actually important to go through the three components. An adequate pap smear meets three criteria. The first is that it needs to be satisfactory, and they're going to report all three of these things on the report that you get from your pathologist. Um, it may not be considered satisfactory if it doesn't include the transformation zone, or that's also known as the uh, the SCJ area. That's where the the two are meeting, right? Um, the transformation of zone, of course, is far broader than the actual SCJ. But if it isn't including that region, you're 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 not likely to see any of the abnormal lesions because that metaplastic region is where you're going to find it. So that's where we need to be able to visualize and take our sampling from there. Um, the second thing that they're going to report is whether or not they see any signs that might be a hint that if we did a biopsy that there's going to be sin or actual malignancy there. And then the third thing is they may see endometrial cells and they might see all sorts of things. It's, it's, it can be fairly common to see endometrial cells on PAP in a peri- or postmenopausal woman. So that may require further follow-up. We're not going to get into that right now. But if you have that ASCCP app, you're going to be um, able to look at all of those different algorithms. So what's the role of this HPV screening? I have had to actually correct my notes because I, like many people, have accidentally written testing instead of screening. So this screening is meant to detect the top 13 to 14 oncogenic HPV screens. Um, there's no use looking for the non-oncogenic strains. There are other strains that cause warts and things. We're not covering that right here. This can be useful in determining the need for colposcopy um, in the case of, let's say, ASCUS. Um, so if like the PAP comes back abnormal, they may reflexively test. You have to order this uh, depending on where you're working. You have to test for reflexive sh um, screening for HPV, especially these oncogenic strains. Um, for women 30 to 65 years, this can be a very, very helpful adjunct screen, meaning co-testing along with PAP. So you collect the PAP, you collect the HPV. Sometimes they're combined into one with newer screening methods um, or let's say uh, screening, let's say brands out there. Um, there is also a specific HPV test that was approved in 2014 by the FDA as a primary means of screening for cervical cancer in women 25 plus. So if HPV 16 and 18 is detected and PAP results are normal, that's like one of those kind of gray areas, then colposcopy is always going to be a consideration. The problem with these specific um, just doing just primary HPV testing we're gonna, or screening, we're going to get into that here in a little bit. I've linked a lot of these so you can learn a little bit more about this later. So um, this, so you, you've collected your swab for HPV. You've got an HPV positive screen. If they haven't clarified what strains you have, you can actually get a genotype um, of whatever HPV you're, you're, you're carrying. Usually that's going to tell you, you know, HPV 16 and or 18. And those are the two, of course, that comprise roughly 80% of what we're worried about here. Um, that that specifically can be really really helpful if a woman goes undergoes co-testing and their pap looks normal um, but they have this positive hpv high-risk hpv screen 
So if you want to get it genotyped, you can say for sure, oh my gosh, we've got one of the more oncogenic strains, specifically 16 and 18. So when does screening begin? Less than 21 years, we're not doing any screening. There are exceptions to this, like with HIV, when a person becomes sexually active and whatnot, but less than 21 years for all comers, the general recommendation is going to be no screening. HIV in our young people nowadays is extremely rare. Um, age 21 to 29, cytology, that's the pap smear alone, every three years is the recommendation. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions. Age 30 to 65 years, you can do either of these three, three things. Cytology alone, that means pap smear every three years. You can do FDA-approved primary high-risk HPV testing alone every five years, or you can do co-testing with the high-risk HPV and cytology every five years. All are completely reasonable. What I think we're going to see is primary... Um, high-risk HPV screening eventually becoming the only thing that we're doing, but we're not there yet, and we'll talk about that. Once you hit 65, no screening. Given that you've had at least, I think it's 20 years or so, that you haven't had any abnormal PAPs or SIN detected on any, um, on any uh, uh, biopsies. If you've had hysterectomy with removal of the cervix, the same recommendation goes. Once you hit 65, um, or, or once you've had your cervix and your, and your uterus removed, if you had no history of abnormal screens, then, you know, you're probably in the clear. But talk to your clinician for some guidance here. Or if you are a clinician, talk to your colleagues and make sure you guys all kind of have an agreement as to what, what you think is best because these guidelines change and we're all <laughs> equally susceptible to making mistakes. So one thing I think that can be really gleaned here is that if you're less than 21, you have such a high likelihood of clearing HPV and not developing any dysplasia that we don't even screen. So what does that tell us? Does that tell us that HPV is the primary issue or is it the health of the vessel that is primary issue? And it is the health of the vessel. That's why age 30 to 65, when you're most likely to be sexually active, that, um, that we're most concerned about getting not just pap smear but also HPV. The age 21 to 29 year olds, just get a pap. You probably have HPV because everybody has HPV. It's the gift that keeps on giving. But there's such an unlikely chance that you're going to develop an abnormal pap or um, sin that we're just going to do a pap smear every three years. There are some other nuances here. For example, if women have HIV and whatnot, we're not going to get into that here. But I recommend going to the show notes and reading about that or just going straight to the practice bulletins and you can see what that is. I don't take care of nearly any HIV. I don't think I've... I've had an HIV patient since I graduated residency. So if it were to happen, of course, we have the guidelines to go back and just double check. But of course, you've got an, an, an immunocompromised person. So they're, and, and they generally tend to have signs of malnourishment and everything else. Not so much present day with people who have been taking PrEP or, or one of these other uh, medications um, as prophylaxis or if they've got HIV, they're on uh, ART therapy not necessarily tremendously immunocompromised, but those drugs also are very toxic to a variety of organs, including the liver. So you just have to be thoughtful about the whole clinical picture. Um, all right, I think I've covered the timing of screening. When is it reasonable to discontinue? Again, there's this great table from the uh, these advisories, table one. This is the US Preventive Services Task Force, I think is what the USPSTF stands for. This is their current most up-to-date table. I've included that in the show notes if you want to check that out. So one um, question that comes up a lot is how is ASCUS managed? That's um, abnormal squamous cells of unknown significance. This is sort of just says we're not really sure, right? So if you haven't checked for HPV, check for that. 
And if that's negative, then you can just co-test in three-year intervals, right? If negative again, you can go back to regular programming after your first. Um, the reason for that is that it's a super low risk that you would develop SYN3 in the setting of a negative PAP, or I'm sorry, negative HPV. But it is slightly higher than a negative cytology result. So instead of five years, we're going to have you come back in three years. If, however, you have a positive HPV screen with ASCUS, then the risk of, of SYN3 or worse is roughly 4 to 5%. And therefore, versus 0.4% with ASCUS on PAP, but a negative HPV screen. So therefore, they're going to recommend colposcopy. That's based on the app. That's based on the guidelines. Nobody out there has to do it. And by the way, if you're a client listening, ask for some lidocaine. Ask for like some sort of pain management because those biopsies are, oof, I can't imagine. I can't imagine somebody taking a bite out of the tip of my penis, you know? Man. So what if HPV is positive but cytology is negative. The first thing you do is you look up at the sky and you say, damn you, because who knows? But really, I would say just relax. Just relax. Significant pathology is small in this cohort. Over five years, SYN3 risk is about 5%. This is for a, a, a typical 30 to 65-year-old. Cancer risk is about 0.3%. And remember that most HPV will clear on its own within six to 12 months. If HPV 6 to 18 is present, that's when the genotyping might be helpful, then there's a 10% chance of developing SYN3 in a matter of a few years. So there's a special algorithm for these types of things. You're going you're gonna to want to consider a um, colposcopy. Um, there are certain patients in which it may actually be uh, really helpful to just go straight to expedited management, especially if you don't care to keep your cervix intact or you know, keep your uterus. So what if you get HPV or a client gets HPV or has an abnormal PAP? We've talked a lot about this, but the environment is far more important than in, uh, for integrating the message of viruses than your genes. The gene theory of cancer versus environment, there's questions there, guys. We've put all of our efforts into this idea that your genes are responsible for cancer. The issue is that they have done studies. You can look up Thomas, uh, what's his name? Thomas Seyfried's work, the cancer as a metabolic disease, and he actually talks about some studies that are so beautiful, elegant studies, healthy cells over here, cancerous cells over here, switch their nuclei, and the healthy cells stay healthy. The cancerous cells stay cancerous, despite having a new nucleus. So there's something else going on there. Lifestyle, stress management, communication with your partner, intimacy, slowing down, these are all critical for clearing HPV, integrating its message, and reversing cervical dysplasia. I also recommend you know, some directed supplementation. Immune Intel HCC is this, has this growing body of in vivo trials where women who have had persistent HPV for two years or more start taking this, and with four to six months, they're just coming back negative, 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 after being positive for so long. So I'll put a little link in here, and there's a little, I actually have a little discount code. I don't make commissions on it, but I'm trying to get as many people to know about this product as possible. There are a couple books as well. You can read more about that. I'll put some links here in the show notes as well. Um, but this is, this is a product made from the mycelia. Again, there's that like overarching connecting organism living out there in nature. Connects everything, right? These are the mycelia of shiitake mushroom. HCC is active hexose correlated compound. It's extracted from the mycelia of these shiitake mushrooms, and then it's encapsulated. And they've given rats like their body weight 
in this in this um, supplement, and there's been no toxicity. So you have very, very little to lose. It is a slightly more expensive supplement, but I only recommend taking it for four to six months until you've got your negative results. And hopefully during that time, you're also working on all of the other lifestyle elements that I've already mentioned and harped on. Um, so Immune Intel HCC, my good friend Mimi Lindquist, she developed this. And listen, I wouldn't even have developed the Clear and Free program had I not seen the hundreds of testimonials from women working with Mimi around. They were like, <laughs> like some really bad stuff, like Sin 2, Sin 3, um, persistent HPV for however long. And bam, after four to six months and being coached by Mimi, all all in the clear. So there's some pretty compelling stuff out there. This is how science moves forward. We find new things that work better. And a lot of women now are saying, I don't want you to do the biopsies. I don't want you to lop off my cervix. I don't want you to do all these things. When you lop off your cervix through leap or cold knife cone, the cervix does develop scar tissue as a result of the healing process, another role of the immune system. And when you get pregnant, there have been a number of women who end up with a locked up cervix that can't dilate any further. So the baby's just hitting like a brick wall despite being engaged in the pelvis and down in the vagina can't get through this scarred opening to the to the uterus so all very important stuff so um, some options for treatment um, I, I'm not gonna go too far into this because we're really talking about screening and prevention but if you still desire children then do so everything everything in your power to avoid excision for the reasons I've already mentioned for sin 2 or sin 3 cryoablation is an option for AIS excision either by loop ex electrosurgical excision procedure a leap procedure or a cold knife cone is recommended because of the tendency to develop skip lesions on the endocervical canal um, again we're not going to get too far into that um, when sin 3 is uh, is diagnosed um, well, let's let's say you've got an, a biopsy that comes back, or you've got a PAP, or whatever. When, let's just talk about PAP. If you were to enter all of that data into the ASCCP app, you're going to get a likelihood that SIN3 or worse can develop over certain a certain period of time. I've included table one here, which says, hey, if the risk is greater than or equal to 60%, expedited treatment is preferred. Don't wait for the colposcopy and all that. Again, these are just recommendations. If the risk is anywhere from 4 to 24.9%, colposcopy is recommended. If the risk is 0.55% to less than 4%, um, that's 3.99%, repeat the test in one year. If it's even less than that, repeat test in three years, you get the picture here. So look at table one. Everything now, guys, is based on the risk of SIN3 or worse developing over a matter of one, two, five, three, five years, whatever. And what if um, HPV or PAP is not available or declined by the client? Well, HPV testing with subsequent treatment for women with positive test results with or without immediate triage using visual inspection with acetic acid is an option. Um, if HPV testing or screening, I should say, is not available, then Visual inspection uh, with acetic acid followed by treatment with cryotherapy is recommended. Um, there are certain places in the world where this is just not available. That's why I'm saying this. But a lot of women are also declining this. So what if we don't do that? Then here are some other options, none of which sound all that great. If, if HPV screening is not available, the WHO recommends visual um, inspection with acetic acid followed by treatment. There you go. That's that. Um, that's sort of a, a repeat, I guess, of what I said before. But this is this is just, I think, the WHO's recommendation. I'm going to actually add that into the show notes. WHO recommendation. All right. 
the HPV vaccine for prevention of cervical cancer. We're going to finish off with this topic because I think that this is a really, really, really important place for us to wrap up this conversation, given that most women who are diagnosed with any abnormalities are recommended the Gardasil vaccine um, in order to prevent cervical cancer. And that, unfortunately, is just not what has played out in Merck's safety or efficacy trials for this uh, sort of Hail Mary that they threw back in the early 2000s. Let's first talk about what is available, and then we'll talk about some of the history and why I'm a little bit <laughs> doubtful about both its safety and its efficacy. And before you go, oh, nonsense, booby pants, listen, just hear me out here. I was never anti-vax. I'm using air quotes on my end. I got all of my vaccines. My wife got all of her vaccines. She even got the Gardasil vaccine when she was a kid, like a teenager. Um... My little, my firstborn had the vaccines up to varicella, and then I was like, and then COVID happened, and I was like, wait a second, there's something amiss with how these you know vaccines are being advertised to pregnant women. I wonder what the other data on vaccines shows. And I was already super thoughtful about this. Like I'd gotten, I'd been scolded in front of my whole department for you know uh, making a a uh, a new couple hesitant about getting the day one hepatitis B vaccines. I looked into their safety data. I mean, 147 kids were administered this, this you know, a dose of this for Combivax. And they it was kids from zero all the way to 12 years. Like day one, all the way up to 12 years. 147 people, that's it. And they looked for five days for adverse reactions. And that's it. That was the entire safety data set. So I was like, shit, I was right. Like, we don't have sufficient data here. So bear with me in this. There are three vaccine options in the U.S. Um, there's only one that's that uh, that's currently available, but they're all FDA approved. The bivalent covers 16 and 18, um, and there's some cross coverage for up to 30% of other oncogenic strains. The quadrivalent has 16, 18, 6, and 11. That's the Gardasil vaccine. Also has some cross coverage. Um, the bivalent and quadrivalent vaccines are comprised of three doses. Then there's the non-avalent. That's the Gardasil 9, hence the 9. 16, 18, 6, 11, and 5 other strains. Um, it's not recommended you get this one in addition to a full course of the bivalent or, bivalent or quadrivalent um, because it hasn't been shown to be any more effective, if effective at all. But um, <clears throat> this, this Gardasil 9 is, is the current... Uh, option available in the United States. You can start the series as early as age nine, and it's recommended that the course be completed by age 26, presumably because we want to get you, you know, inoculated before you're exposed to this pesky human papillomavirus. Now, I said that the bivalent and quadrivalent are available in three-dose series. Um, that is true for the, the Gardasil 9, um, but if you are nine, age nine to 14, there's either a two dose regimen or there's a three dose regimen. You can get, um, if, if we, in other words, get you immunized, so to speak, as, um, in a zero, uh, and then do it on day one and then you get it again, six to 12 months. That is an option for nine to 14 year olds. You can also do the three dose, which is day one and then two months later and then six months after that. Okay. The, the two dose is only recommended if um, the second dose is administered less than five months after the first dose, okay? Um, okay, and then the, the, if you get it between age 15 and 45, it's a three-dose regimen, again, zero, two, and six months. So let's talk about some fuckery within the vaccine industry. So Merck, it's a major pharmaceutical company. 
they developed a a product called Viox back in the 90s. I believe it was it was released in the 90s, and they ended up accumulating so many lawsuits. The most recent statistic I saw, I mean, there's the numbers are tens of millions, but there was 15 million dollars lost in 2007 based on lawsuits related to Viox because it was causing heart attacks in people. This is why when people are put on EDSEDs, we say, hey, there's maybe not the best option for pain management if you have an underlying heart condition, hypertension, that type of thing. This is where that came from. So what they did is they threw a Hail Mary. They put all of their eggs into a basket and created a whole market for a vaccine that would prevent cervical cancer. It was called the Be One Less campaign. And when I was in college, I remember seeing in every doctor's office, I used to work as a male boy at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in the, in the di Division of Internal Medicine, where my mom was like the executive administrator. So I got a job there while I was in college, delivering mail, got to know the medical school and a lot of staff and all of that. And I remember seeing everywhere, suddenly these, these campaign posters were popping up, Be One Less. And you remember the ads, they were like, like, did you know, mom? Did you know, dad? Get the Gardasil vaccine to protect your kids. Otherwise, they're going to die of cervical cancer, right? So this was advertised as a means of preventing cervical cancer. But does it work to do that? That remains to be clarified. We don't know if it does or doesn't because there hasn't been adequate research in investigating this. The first issue is that there were surrogate markers used, right? As we've already described, it takes cervical cancer years to decades, like 30 years plus to develop into cervical cancer from the time of initial HPV transmission. So Merck didn't have time. They were already buried in debt from all these lawsuits, right? How are they going to make that money up? Let's create a PR campaign that worked extremely well to get every last child immunized against this HPV thing. And so... They needed to get it through the FDA as quickly as possible. So you can't wait 30 years to see if it decreases cervical cancer rates. You just can't do that. So they had to use other endpoints, which conveniently were these SYN2 and SYN3 results. But remember, the majority of these are cleared by the immune system without any intervention. And you can drop that, you can, you can increase that likelihood of regression or clearance even further by dialing in stress, diet, mindset, hydration, trying to detoxify your environment and your body, um, hydrating well, sleeping more, managing stress, all of those things. So this was a problem. They're using surrogate markers, but advertising that it prevents cervical cancer. Not every person with SYN2 or SYN3 develops cervical cancer. So this is a problem for Merck. The other issue is that we don't know um, if this is really, really safe. So there is... In every vaccine on the market, there's going to be what are called placebo-controlled trials. That means you've taken the vaccine, a vial, you've injected it into a group of people, and then you've taken in other vials that look just like the vaccine vials in, the, in that experimental group, and you inject it into a group of other people. And you compare, did one group, did specifically, did the experimental group have more adverse reactions? And defining an adverse reaction in the vaccine industry is really trouble. This is why so many people are like demanding we have better um, safety data and a, a deeper investigation as to the safety of vaccines. Because five days looking for adverse events in Recombivax is not enough to determine is this doing any sort of neurological damage to our babies, to our children, to our adults. Added to that problem 
of this placebo-controlled trial is that there aren't true placebos used in almost any vaccine safety trial, including Merck's own safety trials for Gardasil. Instead of using a true saline solution, which was to be a true placebo, an inert solution of saline, the control group was receiving a vial that contained the aluminum adjuvant that is all the rage right now around the safety of vaccines. And they had a proprietary type of aluminum adjuvant called amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate. So imagine this. You want to see if your device or your drug results in greater adverse reactions when compared to a true placebo. But what if you don't use a true placebo? And let's say that you used a true placebo, just as a hypothetical, and let's say 20% of the people who got the vaccine in the experimental group ended up with some really, really bad reaction. It could be anaphylaxis. It could be uh, a compromise to their cardiovascular system. It could be some long-standing neurologic disorder. It could be death. Let's say 20% of people in a 1,000-person group developed that. That might be, you know, what, 2%? 20 in 1,000? Well, if in the placebo group nobody had any reactions, then we can say we have a problem here. 2% of people in that group had these issues, whereas 0% in the other. That would say, hey, this vaccine is not necessarily safer than a placebo. In fact, it's actually harmful compared to placebo. But what if that placebo was actually a faucebo and contained amorphous aluminum, aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate? Well, then maybe 20% in both groups, or sorry, 2% in both of those groups would have some serious adverse reaction. And then Merck can take that data to the FDA and say, look, our, our device produced just as many adverse reactions as an inert placebo. And that's exactly what they did. That's how they got this through. And this is why there's ongoing litigation around Gardasil aimed and targeted at Merck around how these safety trials were done. This is not placebo-controlled. And when you actually go into how many vaccines were released to the public, almost none of them are placebo-controlled. And now before you get your, your pants in a bunch here, you might look at the data and say, well, yeah, there was a placebo-controlled trial. Yeah, there was. It was a true placebo-controlled trial. But of all of the uh, trials, the safety trials that Merck completed and then presented to the FDA, the smallest one was the only one that was placebo-controlled, and it did look favorable. It did look favorable. Um, like, you know, it looks like the two groups, you know, were, were comparable, but not in the bigger ones. In the bigger ones, it was a wash. Same number of adversary, you know, reactions in both. Um, I may have missaid that. In the true placebo-controlled, we had more adverse reactions in the, um, in the experimental group than the placebo, which is what you would expect. You've got nothing versus something that is potentially toxic. Yeah, you're going to get some adverse reactions there. But those numbers were folded into these other much larger tens of thousands of people in other FOCEBO trials, and it looked like a wash. And the FDA was like, sure, go for it. Now, what is it about these vaccines that might be so harmful? Before we get into the aluminum adjuvants, let's talk about um, polysorbate 80. This is also added to many vaccines, specifically the Gardasil vaccine. It's an emulsifying agent. You can find it in a lot of food products like salad dressings and whatnot. It's also added to a lot of drugs in order to help that drug cross the blood-brain barrier. Okay? 
So that means we're adding this to a vial with a bunch of other stuff, and we don't know if that stuff is okay in the brain or not, but now we're actually adding something to help it cross the blood-brain barrier. It also contains 225 micrograms in each dose of this AAHS, the amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate. We don't exactly know why these aluminum adjuvants have been um, put into vaccines. Of course, it replaced thimerosal, the mercury adjuvant that we know is now super toxic to inject into people's bodies. But I would venture to say that maybe we're going to see the same with aluminum if we all don't already have enough data. I've included eight studies as uh, a means of trying to understand the role of these aluminum adjuvants in vaccines to begin with. But Merck's safety data also revealed some other bad things. If a person was also exposed to HPV 16 and 18, and then they got the Gardasil series, they actually had a higher chance of developing SYN2 or SYN3. This is from Merck's own safety data. And, and before, again, before you get your pants in a bunch, I know that they have followed up on this with studies, but those, those studies were riddled with bias based on the authors, um, uh, the, the publications themselves. These are meta-analyses, reviews and whatnot. They're like, well, yeah, these, these, there are some studies out there that show that, hey, maybe neg negative e efficacy with Gardasil is not, is not uh, something we're actually observing. Maybe that was a, a fluke in that, you know, the way we interpreted that data. You can interpret data to, say any, to tell any story you want. But when they looked at those individual studies in, an, in a meta-analysis one, they said that most of these studies, if not all, in fact, one of the two studies I link here that followed up on this, they said oh, they're all biased. So Mark just simply has to finance other studies until they get the results that they want. Forget the ones that, don't, that, that do show a negative efficacy. Let's just publish now, selectively publish. This is called selection bias. Those studies that show that there isn't actually negative e efficacy, so everybody just forgets all about it. No thanks. So what's happening in the real world with this vaccine? Well, from the safety data, 128 of 15,706 women enrolled. That's 81 in 10,000 had a serious adverse reaction. Meanwhile, if, even if, if you go to like an endemic, an area in which uh, HPV is really problematic, like where they have high cervical cancer rates, like in East Africa, I used to, 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 I lived a couple summers in Malawi trying to do some work there. The risk of dying of cervical cancer there is 4.27 in 10,000. I'll have to check, is it dying or getting? I think it's dying of cervical cancer. So that means that your risk your risk of having an adverse reaction from the vaccine is 81 in 10,000. That could lead to long-term morbidity. And of course, these, these adverse reactions are widely varied. But your risk of dying of cervical cancer is 4.27 in 10,000. That's a 20-fold increase in something bad happening to you by getting the Gardasil series. This is where your scientific mind needs to kick in. Maybe you aren't compelled to tell people not to get vaccines. That's not our job anyways. But it is our job to provide the actual evidence. This is what reading literature is all about. In addition to some of these serious adverse reactions, we're also seeing a giant rise in autism. One in 36 children back in 2020. This is up from one in 150 in 2000. How do we explain that? I don't think it's just vaccines, but I do think that as we're putting more and more bad shit into people's bodies, starting day one of life, I think we have to at least ask, is this contributing? It's likely multifactorial. It's likely glyphosates and crap in our soil or air or water, GMO foods, whatever. It could be all those things. But if we're not willing to say, hey, there's a trend here, like are we just going to ignore it? I mean, it's a five-fold increase. That's it's insane. Subfertility is also an issue. 
there's there is a in general 10 to 15 percent miscarriage rate in the united states but women who were enrolled in the gardasil trials who got pregnant while enrolled like meaning they were in the midst of the of the trial their miscarriage rate was 27 percent. maybe it's just a coincidence maybe it was just a bad data set i don't know but are we not willing to say hey let's look at this to make sure that we're not impacting women's fertility by doing this this Gardasil thing willy-nilly, given all of the other risks and potentially no upsides, given what we've talked about. There's also an uptick in autoimmune disorders, severe allergies. All are related to optimal immune function. So guys, we've got a, a lot here that we covered. I know I did not stay w even close to 30 minutes, but I think this is a really, really important episode. So I hope you enjoyed this. Again, if you want some more in-depth looks, I've got lots of studies linked, graphics, tables from the practice advisory, whatever they're called, practice advisories and whatnot. Go to my Patreon account. I'll link it here in the uh, podcast description. And I'll see you next time. We're not going to do weekly episodes because I just, I just want to do this at my own pace. I don't want to be pushing myself to do one every single week. I'm just going to do it as the topics come up. And, um, and I hope you enjoy. So go to Patreon. Um, subscribe there. It helps you know offset some of the costs of producing this and producing all these notes and all the time I'm putting in. If you like it, guys, I'm going to keep doing it. It's, it's just a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here with you and to be able to share what I'm so thoughtful as uh, about as a father, as a clinician, as a husband, as a son, as a brother. And um, if you found anything here insightful, please leave a review, share these episodes with your friends, with fellow clinicians, with women who you know would benefit from this information. I'm Nathan. I love you all. And I'll see you next time here on the Obiganio Wano podcast. Take care.